Well, good morning. I have to be honest, the most nervous thing that I've had all day is that Tim would um, turn this on in the middle of a song. But <laughs> so far that hasn't happened, so... I'm going to take a moment to pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, um, we ask that the words that I say and the things that we hear in our hearts um, would be pleasing to you. In your name, amen. I'm just going to start by asking if any of you heard, have heard these words before, and I really hope you have. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Anybody heard those? Good. Very pleased to hear that. Every time we pray that prayer, that's the one that Jesus taught his disciples, we ask for God to bring in the kingdom of heaven. But I wonder if that's what we really want. Do we really want the kingdom of God to come? Last week we had the Lord's Supper and I heard everyone who was here say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look forward to the coming of that kingdom and we ask for it to come. Because in the words of Paul, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that final messianic banquet in the new age when all of God's work will, um, will be complete and his kingdom will have come in its fullness. But do any of us want to attend that grand banquet? At least, do we want to attend it soon? Jesus taught in his parables that the kingdom of God was like a pearl of great price or like a treasure uncovered in a field that was so valuable and so desirable that men were willing to sell everything they had in order to get it. But few of us would be willing to make that sacrifice, at least not right now. We're not all that sure that we want the kingdom of God to come just now. And there are a few reasons for that. Sorry, I'm not real good with the clicker, but we'll get there. Uh, the first is that um, we're pretty comfortable and actually we have everything we need and most of us have pro probably got everything that we want as well. The second is that in Australia, the lucky country, the workers' paradise, well, isn't it pretty close to heaven on earth already? And the third is we're not really sure what heaven is. It's something vague and fluffy and it's remote from our daily lives and separate to all the people and things that we love so much. So in the first place, we're a pretty comfortable people. For the most part, we like our life as it is. Despite all the problems that we might have with our marriages or money or jobs or families, we're really fairly happy. Stuart showed us last week that the research is that we're the ninth happiest country in the world. Was that right, ninth? Ninth. I'm sure we can push our way up there, but all the same, we hear from our writers and our artists that things are actually much more gloomy than they seem. We seem to like going to movies and read books, and especially on the news, about things like crime and misery, cruelty, violence, sometimes government conspiracies. And if we run out of those sorts of stories, we could always be attacked by aliens or zombies. 
But I'm not really sure that that sort of literature and entertainment is an accurate portrayal of our everyday lives. After all, most of us have families and friends who we love and jobs that keep us busy and happy, or at least secure, and a faith that sustains us in the rougher moments. And not that there isn't suffering in the world, and sometimes very close to home, but we seem to imagine things much worse than they really are. And while we might pray most Sundays for the kingdom of God to come, we would probably add, but not yet. Your kingdom come, Lord, but not right now. And besides, we might ask, in the second place, haven't we achieved here in Australia a way of life for most of us that's just about as close to heaven on earth as you can get? If we politely exclude some of the more marginalised minorities, aren't we all going to have a good job, live in a nice place, be well fed, surrounded by some pretty cool stuff, and mostly look pretty good doing it as well. For the first time in history, those of us in the Western world have built societies in which most people no longer need to worry about the basic necessities of life. For most of history, people have been concerned about one thing, how to stay alive, where the next meal's coming from, what shelter they're going to live under, do they have the right clothes to protect them from the elements? This was definitely true of the people of Jerusalem, the ones who were listening to Zechariah preaching about the kingdom. Skip a few here. Here we go. I've caught up. It's good. These people in Jerusalem um, were listening to Zechariah, and if you're not familiar with Zechariah, he was speaking to God's people just after they returned from the exile in Babylon. He was contemporary of another prophet called Haggai, and he had been listening to the preaching of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Zechariah listened to their preaching and he took seriously the, the promises that he heard from them. In the face of the evidence on the ground, he believed things like what we hear in Jeremiah 29, which goes like this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And these are the people that Zechariah was speaking to, a bunch of refugees who'd managed to survive the Babylonian destruction of their country in 587 BC. Some of them had spent years in exile in Babylon and then been allowed to return to Palestine 70 years later. Others, among the poorer classes, had been allowed to remain in Palestine all along and they simply scraped out a living in that devastated land as best they could. But now in the year 518, when this passage from Zechariah was written, they'd returned to Jerusalem. God's chosen people, but they were still in real trouble. Their temple was a burnt out ruin 
Their city was nothing but rubble. Drought and blight withered their crops and hunger was rampant. Inflation caused by a shortage of everything ate up anything that they could earn. They no longer had a king or a government. Once a proud nation, now they were just a tiny, impoverished sub-province in the vast Persian Empire. Their life was a matter of scratching around for the basic necessities. So no doubt when they heard Zechariah preach this passage to them, they would have loved to hear about the coming of the kingdom of God. They needed something better. And that's still true for most of the people on this planet. Most people need something better because they still have to worry about simply managing to exist. But that's no longer true for most of us. We no longer need to worry about getting enough to eat. Actually, we worry about getting too much to eat. And I don't know about any of you, if you had grandparents that were always trying to fatten us up, and eventually it does work, um, <laughs> just if you're worried about that. And most of us have somewhere nice to live. And these days clothes are for fashion, not function. And like Stuart told us last week, because all our needs are being met, we can make the things we want sound like the things that we need. Sometimes we can be self-aware enough to know that these problems aren't really as bad as we make them out. Sometimes we call them first world problems. Because we're so free of anxiety about the basic necessities of life that we can just choose to worry about which smartphone to buy or about how many we should plan for the party next week or about which restaurant puts the most organic whole foods in their dishes or whether my car really fits with my personality. We've pretty much got it made, we think. So who wants to leave all of that for some unknown thing called the kingdom of God? Who wants to give up the good life in Australia for some ethereal realm in the sky? And maybe that's the third reason we don't want the kingdom of God to come because we think of it as some vague realm way off in heaven somewhere, separated from all the good things that we know and that we so enjoy in this life. We have strange conceptions about the kingdom of God. Usually we think of it as one of the, up in the clouds, there's harps playing, angels flying around, pearly gates. And we've got pictures given to us from literature like Pilgrim's Progress, the art of Rubens and Michelangelo, and even from Negro spirituals that sing about golden slippers walking on the golden streets, and even from the imagery and symbolism of the Bible itself. We put those pictures into our hymns. You might know the old hymn, second verse of which goes, Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who were and art and evermore shalt be. And none of that really makes a lot of sense to us. Nor does it sound all that appealing. And so we might pray for God's kingdom to come, 
but we're not sure we want it. So let's seek first the kingdom of earth and let heaven take care of itself. But in the Bible, there's a different reality to heaven. It's the dwelling place of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the biblical writers strain at the limits of human language to describe that place. And maybe it really is a combination of all those popular images that we have in our heads. But Zechariah had a teacher in Isaiah who gave him a very different vision of what heaven's like. In Isaiah 11, we hear a promise about the coming one and the kingdom that he'll bring. And this is how Isaiah describes it. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And get this, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it all sounds quite a long way from glassy seas and white robes and pearly gates. And alongside that, the prophet Zechariah gives us a different and maybe more relatable picture of the kingdom of God. And like Isaiah's picture, it's grounded very much in the realities of this earth. Let me read it to you again. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. So according to Zechariah, the kingdom of God is a public park. And if you go to one of the parks even around here this afternoon on such a beautiful day, you'll actually see what heaven looks like, at least to Zechariah. Heaven's a park where old people are no longer cold and lonely <clears throat> and ill and senile, but participants in a community. It's a public park where the elderly can sit together and bask in the sun and talk and laugh over the good old days in full vigour and clear mind and satisfaction of life. The kingdom of God is a park where little children can run and play 
in safety and fun and delight. It's a place where no predator is waiting to lure one of them away with offers of lollies. It's a place where there's no one lurking to try and tempt the older children into buying drugs. It's a place where no child is abused or unwanted or malnourished. And when there's not even a bully among the group, shoving and taunting the other kids until they burst into tears. The kingdom of God, says Zechariah, is a public park where the streets are safe for children. Is that what you think of when you think of the kingdom of heaven? Is that what you think heaven is like? Because you see, the kingdom of God, according to the Bible, is not some never-never land way off in the sweet by and by. Most of the Bible actually isn't all that interested in heaven. The kingdom of God is life on this earth. Life transformed to accord with the will and purpose of a loving God. The Lord's Prayer does not say, your kingdom come in heaven. It says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God works to accomplish his will for the earth. He works to fulfill his purpose and intention for human life in the world here and now. His intention is to see new life come to every home here in Oran Park and the growing southwest and everywhere else too. He's pressing on towards the time when this solid, everyday, common land of ours will become the good place he intended it to be in the beginning. And in the light of all that, it's clear that we don't yet have it made, that we're not yet living in the kingdom of God, not even here in the lucky country. Because in the kingdom of God, our streets will be safe for children. And right now, they're far from being fit places for our little ones. Few parents would send their child into any of our parks now to play unaccompanied, even in a relatively safe place like Oran Park, because our parks are not fit for children. On the streets of our cities, in our own country, children are sleeping rough, scrounging through garbage for food, forced into crime and worse just to get by. Maybe not here in Oran Park, but really not very far away. Children in parts of Africa are dying by the hundreds every day through malnutrition, which is a soft way of saying starvation. Children in countries like El Salvador still fall victim to death squads. The Rohingya, the Rohingya people are now refugees from the country that they fled to as refugees. And children in Syria watch as their friends and parents are killed and their homes destroyed. And since that's all true, can we not and must we not daily pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, bring in the time when our streets will be fit for our children. Because if that time is not coming then there really isn't much point to what we're doing. If Zechariah's vision is not the goal of human history, then there is no purpose to our journey on this earth. The kingdom of God, a place where little children can play, that is the goal for we, which we need to pray and yearn 
and struggle. Zechariah is also telling us that the kingdom will not have come until our children are also fit for our streets. And that means that you and I have work to do. Now don't misunderstand me. By our own efforts, we can't create the kingdom because only God can work such a radical transformation. But having seen Zechariah's vision of what God's final purpose is for the earth, we can at least say yes to that purpose and try to live our lives in line with it. And that means we have work to do as parents and grandparents and as teachers and examples and leaders. It's not enough that we accept God's purpose by working in society to make our streets fit for children. We also have to work in our homes and schools and churches and workplaces and shopping centres and holiday resorts and RSL clubs and sports grounds and anywhere else that we find ourselves to raise children who are fit for our streets. So we need to be at home for our children. We all have jobs and responsibilities we have to attend to, but we constantly should be asking ourselves, are we raising children who are fit for our streets? A child who's not been taught right from wrong is not fit to be loosed on society. A child who has no discipline is a child without limits on their selfishness. A child who has not been loved and encouraged and praised and hugged is a child who can never love others. And a child who's not been taught that there's a sovereign God to whom they're responsible is a child who will never use their God-given talents wisely and who will therefore have no purpose and meaning for their life. And we're all children, no matter how old we are. And if our parents can no longer help us, the rest of this family has to step in. So are we raising children who can contribute to their fellow human beings, who know how to love God and their neighbour? Or are we perpetuating the evils of this life in the children entrusted to us? These are questions we have to keep asking. Are we raising children who are fit to receive the kingdom of God? And maybe we can only raise such children if we ourselves are fit. Maybe our children will be ready for the kingdom only if we ourselves, as parents and grandparents and leaders and citizens, are also ready for it. Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God, we hear in the New Testament, and in parable after parable, he instructed us how to become citizens of it. We can't earn our way into the kingdom of God, he said, by our own good deeds or our fine works, because the kingdom of God is simply a gift given to all workers equally in the vineyard. Nor can we buy our way into God's kingdom, no matter how much our liquid capital. We may be able to buy the best clothes and food and even a place to be in the summertime. We may be able to purchase the latest technology or the best education, a great house and time in the sun, but we can't buy that kingdom of God that Zechariah pictures with its peace and contentment, its secure joy and its happy elders and children. In fact, Jesus taught, 
very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God at all. Because, you see, rich people tend to depend on themselves and their wealth when what we have to do to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, whether it be rich or poor or middle class, is to depend solely on God and his working in our lives. Because in the end, we don't become members, but children. And as God's children, we have to trust him. And so it finally comes down, it seems, to that story we heard in Matthew's Gospel, that story in which Jesus took that little child and put him in front of everyone as an example. It finally comes down to humbly depending on our God as a child depends on his father. For in the kingdom of God, God is truly king. He rules. He orders life. His will is done. And until we stop trying to be our own gods until we cease making decisions apart from his will, until we stop thinking that anything goes and start asking what God wants, until we stop relying on our own petty strength to live righteous and meaningful and decent lives in this world, we will never be ready to say the words, your kingdom come, and neither will our children. It's no wonder that Zechariah can picture that happy public park in his prophecy, Because the happiness in that park depends on something else. It depends on the fact that God dwells in the midst of the city and orders and rules its life. And so you see, if our children are fit to be on the streets of our city, they have to be raised by parents and adults who depend on the will and power of God. They have to be raised by adults who themselves have become humble and as a little child. They have to be guided by people who can truly pray, our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if we can truly pray that prayer, if we can want God's will for our lives and for the lives of our children with all our hearts and minds and strength and understand that God offers (coughs) us free grace but not cheap grace, then maybe we and our children will be ready to receive our king and his kingdom that's coming. Because the kingdom comes, friends. It surely comes. Make no mistake, it began to come that night when that one child who's fit for all streets in all places and all times was born in the city of Bethlehem. It began when God himself, incarnate in that child, drew near to us and took up his dwelling place with us in fulfilment of Zechariah's promise. It began when that one child, grown up, died on a cross and was raised to new life by his father and became the victor over all the evil and violence, all the ugliness and death that haunt our communities. And so we know in Jesus that Zechariah's promise will finally be fulfilled and that our city and the cities of the world will become faithful cities. God will dwell with us as our ruler and as our father. He will be our God and we will be his people. And old men and women shall sit again in the park, each with staff in hand for very age. 
and the streets of our city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the squares. Let your kingdom come, yes, quickly come, on earth as in heaven. Amen.